This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. another Christmas case, but we picked out missing person 25514. So that's a Namus. Um, there's not a lot about it. Uh, not a lot about this guy. He gets into Namus on July 29th of 2014. That's when this case is officially entered in there, but he goes missing December 25th of 1989 out of, Multnomah County in Oregon. So that's Portland, Oregon. He was 34 years old when he went missing. He was a Caucasian male. He's 5 feet 11 and weighed 135 pounds. Uh, This guy's name is Kevin Jonathan Smith. Now, I couldn't find any pictures of him. Did you see any pictures along the way? No, I actually couldn't find anything at all about him. So when he went missing, he had um, heterochromia. So his left eye was blue and his right eye was brown. He had a full beard and mustache with brown hair. And the only thing that I could find of note in the different uh, places I've looked for him was he had uh, two upper front teeth missing. I don't know if they mean the middle two teeth or like the two on the sides, but uh, he was missing some, some teeth. Um, he's that's a long time to be missing and not really be uh, talked about at all. I I didn't find any old news coverage of him. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. Um, Web Sleuth, somebody briefly was talking about him. Um, he also has kind of a common name for all this. So just being called Kevin Smith made it uh, interesting to go hunting for him. Uh, there's right, a lot of yeah. missing Kevin Smiths. You're right. There are um, this particular one. Uh, there, he doesn't have any information, and these cases always make me wonder. You know? Yeah. Like um, anytime there's not a picture in Namath, um, I find that a little bit odd. Uh, anytime there's no additional information anywhere. Right? I mean, yeah. it, you, you just have to wonder now. So this guy was, uh, you said, 34. 
Correct. So at least stereotypically, he is part of, you know, the most not vulnerable group of people, right? Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean that there's no possible way that um, he succumbed to foul play. It just means that there's less of a chance that, you know, somebody did something to him, right? That tends to be at, at least how all those cases are treated and how they, yeah, that, that, that's historically and how they're run down. There could be, you know, more information revealed about him that would make him not solidly in that category for whatever reason. You know, any anybody who, who's suffering from a physical ailment, uh, probably any sort of mental ailment, uh, there's, there's some things that would render a middle-aged man uh, not in that category. But for the most part, what we've seen about him so far, he would still be in that category. And I looked, but... So I, I never know, like, should we mention this guy, right? And I looked, I couldn't find anything else. But then I'm like, well, these are the guys that need to be mentioned almost more so, right? I tend to agree with you, yeah. With his case, I I, I think these guys get overlooked when, you, when people realize there's not a lot of info out there. But he is clearly, like, he is spread across from multiple missing person sites, but all the circumstances are the same. It just says that Kevin Smith was last seen by his family members on Christmas day of 1989 after he was dropped off at his residence. And it stops there. Now with the name Kevin Smith, this guy could still fall into a category of being alive today and having just not wanted anything to do with his family anymore. There are a number of things where he could have, uh, met foul play potentially. And there are a number of things where he could have, I mean, so he's reported missing. Let's just go ahead and say that he is reported missing officially, but he is reported missing out of Oregon. And I have had a number of problems over the years, getting straight answers on Oregon and Washington state cases. They are that could explain why he, why he gets into Namus as late as he does. Uh, if he were alive today, he'd be sixty eight years old, and that's not too old for me to go. Well, this guy might like he might still be around kicking somewhere. Um, it is it is getting to be an older missing persons case though, being nineteen eighty nine, because like right there you're thirty some years out, thirty almost thirty five years out. So uh, he's missing from Portland, Oregon, and he does have an active investigator at the uh, Portland Police Bureau. And that missing persons case was filed about a week later. So it's actually agency case number 90-1025. And he is our highlighted missing person case of the day. Right. And it's a he, he was last seen on Christmas and there's no information like if his family saw him very often, right? Right. And we have no idea, like, when he, how much time elapsed, right? Correct. We just know that the case file gets opened up the following year. So it's at least a week. Um, he pops in the Oregon 
missing person directory. I don't know if people are familiar with that one, but that's the old missing insights. Uh, Web Sleuth had a page on him, and then he kind of sprawled over into another page. Um, there are people with his exact name and birthday who are alive. I cannot tell if any of them are him. There are a variety of, uh, of names to run down there. So if he's alive, uh, he's a Christmas Day missing person. He's out of Oregon. If he's alive, he could really be anywhere because he's had, you know, 34 years and change. So I did want to mention him today, um, particularly for exactly the reason that you said, uh, these cases are the ones that we had the most difficulty highlighting. Um, I, I feel like, you know, more should be done to try and highlight them when, when people can do it. Uh, so that's definitely what we're doing with him here today. Now we have kind of committed to doing this sort of sprawling investigation into people who would be, would be home for the holidays. And we didn't leave out older cases. The next case that we have on our list is like, a, it's a really old one. We put it in here. It's it, technically it's three people for one murder, but the, the crime in this case is 1922 in Onslow County, North Carolina. Two of the people that are involved here um, they have the same last name. They are brothers. They're known as the Dove brothers, uh, Frank and Fred Dove. And then there's a, another young man named George Williams who's involved here. So we're going to run through this one from the perspective of like the, the legal stuff. That comes out of um, the, the regist- National Registry of Exonerations. Um, it's in the old section. I think it's like before 1989 or something like that, they call it. But these are really, really old. And this is a case where the contributing factors are believed to have been perjury or false accusation. Uh, this is an African-American male. All three of these guys are are black males uh, as far as the race and uh, ethnicity and then the gender of the convicted parties. They're convicted in 1922 and they're exonerated in 1928. And the sentence that they had received for this was death. Cyrus Jones is a white rural mail carrier in Maysville, North Carolina. He also operated an automobile for hire company. So he had multiple jobs. Between his home in Maysville, North Carolina, and his destination in Swansboro, North Carolina, on the evening of August 5th, 1922, Cyrus is stopped and is shot in the head. Because his wife was away, meaning she was not at the Maysville home, he he drove over to a neighbor's house and he stayed there until he passed away several days later. Cyrus Jones told this neighbor, John Midget, that Collins, Williams, and Doves had shot him. Uh, Evidence showed that in the community, William Hardison was known as Collins, or Willie Hardison was known as Collins. The following morning, the Dove brothers and then George Williams and Willie Hardison were arrested for the shooting and they were held in jail in Jacksonville. Okay, so we're just going to start there. Now, this this case is an odd one in that, as old as it is, I actually have the court records for it. Um, And being able to look at uh, the court records is always like a, a really interesting thing. 
So I'm going to run down the sort of statement of facts that comes out of the criminal indictment. And this is from the October term, 1922, of the Onslow Superior Court. Here's what it says. The three defendants, George Williams, Frank Dove, and Fred Dove, were tried jointly for the murder of Cyrus Jones. Willie Hardison was actually tried first and separately from these three defendants for the same offense. And Willie Hardison was convicted of murder in the first degree. The three defendants in the case were also convicted of murder in the first degree. The evidence of the state was in in and to the effect that Cyrus Jones, a mail carrier from Swansboro, who had also operated an automobile for hire, was shot on the highway about a mile and a half from the town of Swansboro at or about seven o'clock on the afternoon of the 5th of August, 1922. After he was shot, he drove his automobile back to the home of a neighbor named John Midget, where he stopped, his wife being away from home at the time. Midget answered his cries for help and asked him what was the matter, to which he replied that he had been beaten to death and there was no chance for him and asked that he might be taken out of the car and into his home. Midget then asked him who had beaten him and his reply was Collins, Williams, and Doves. That's a quote with the three names. There was ample evidence to the effect that Willie Hardison was known in the community as Collins. The news of the mysterious shooting of Jones was noised throughout the community, and his neighbors hastened to his bedside. He told those standing about to get the doctor that there was no chance for him to live, and to different witnesses, he stated that Collins, Williams, and Dove shot him in an effort to take his car. He languished from Saturday until the following Wednesday night, mostly in a subconscious state of mind, when he finally died of meningitis caused by a gunshot wound inflicted in the left side of his head with a size four or six shot. Willie Hardison testified that sometime prior to August the 5th, Jones, who operated an automobile for hire, had taken him and the three defendants to a place called Marines, which was 10 or 12 miles away, and that they were headed to a dance. That Cyrus had an understanding with his passengers that they were to leave at 12 o'clock and failing to get them together at that time, he left them at Marines. Willie Hardison said that the three defendants in this case told him they intended to, quote, get Jones for leaving them at Marines. And on Friday night, before Jones was shot the following day, Hardison, the three defendants, George Williams, Frank and Fred Dove, and one Clyde Sanders met at a tobacco barn belonging to Nash Bell where Hardison was curing tobacco, and that they then and there agreed upon and planned the killing of Jones. Hardison also testified that he was to tell Jones the following morning that the three defendants wanted him to take them to a place called Stella on Saturday afternoon, and that they were to meet at or near a, quote, colored church, a little more than one mile from the town of Swansboro. Uh, And that's colored like C-O-L-O-R-E-D. They're making a racial reference. It was agreed that the gun with which they were to kill him was to be hid in the woods and a bush was to be thrown in the road so as to indicate to the defendants where the gun was concealed. When this point was reached, they were to stop Jones on the pretext that they had some whiskey hid in the woods and they wanted to go and get it. Willie said that he saw Jones on the morning of the 5th of August and he made the arrangements. 
it was agreed that he would come by for them about 6 or 6.30 in the afternoon, meaning they've set an appointment time for Cyrus Jones to bring his car over and pick him up. The evidence of the state is to the effect that Cyrus Jones passed by the colored church about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, and he had with him as a passenger one man named Captain Merritt, and that Willie Hardison was standing in front of the church waiting for him. Hardison told Jones that they were ready. Later, the three defendants came by the church where Hardison was and told him that they would go on a road leading out from the main Swansboro Road, referred to in the evidence as the, quote, Belt Road, B-E-L-T. And they would wait there for Hardison to come with Captain Jones. Hardison said that Jones came by the church, took him in the automobile, and that they went out the road in the direction the three defendants in this action had gone. That the defendants then got in the car, and that when they reached the path that led to the place where Hardison stayed, he got out of the car, but he noticed in a minute or so that the car had stopped about 150 yards further up the road. He went to the car, and he asked Captain Jones whether the, where the defendants were, and that Cap, that Cyrus Jones told him that they had gone into the bushes to get some whiskey, or so they said. Hardison says he went a short way into the bushes, and there he found the three defendants in a squatting position, and that Williams had the gun drawn on, jo- on Jones, ready to shoot, and that they made him, Hardison, take the gun and fire the fatal shot, which Willie Hardison says that he did. Hardison says that they all went to Jones after he was shot, and they tried to stop him from hollering and making so much noise. They turned the car around and they started him back on the road towards Swansboro and that they then all fled. There was evidence on the part of the state that the tracks around the automobile indicated that several persons had been in and around the car. There was further evidence to the effect that three defendants were seen coming out of Swansboro in the direction of the, quote, colored church, and that the defendants' doves were seen within 45 or 50 yards of the colored church around or about 6 o'clock, and that the defendant, Williams, was seen a little before this time coming out of Swansboro. There was some evidence to the effect that one of the doves had stated during the week that he expected to be in New York the following week, and Williams had also stated to one of his companions at the sawmill that he did not any more mind killing a man than he would a snake. It will be necessary to state some of the evidence a little more particularly as to fairly and fully present one or two more serious questions in this case. So the court indicates that that's what they're going to do next is they're going to basically copy and paste some testimony here. I was going to ask you, what's the oldest like court case you followed? Oh, followed? Well, like in terms of reading the whole thing and going through it, have you ever looked at some of these really old cases? Yeah, um, I I don't have one like right at the forefront of my mind, but it it would have been eighties some. Uh, I'm sorry, eighteen hundred and something. So yeah. So I I do the same thing. It, uh, so this is about the time that I'd say the turn of the century to now. Court records, uh, you can actually go back and read like multiple different types of court records, and you can see a lot of how the justice system has changed in some ways and some of how it hasn't. I was a little shocked by this one that, you know, as we're recording this, this case is 101 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
I pulled, so I'm going to come back over to this court document in just a second. But first, I wanted to pull and, and talk to you about a couple of the different sources here. Now, the newspaper that covered this at the time, so we have the Charlotte News, the Greensboro Daily, the Wilmington Morning Star, the Concord Daily Tribune, the Daily Free Press, the Greenville News, and the News and Observer. Uh, with the exception of the Daily Free Press, I think, and I don't actually know what that one is. I think the rest of them are all North Carolina papers. I um, had recently been working on some stuff that predates even this by 40 years. And I, I got pretty fascinated by how the news covers some of this. There is a, a series of things happening here that the news latches onto and they sort of connect everybody too, but we're going to hear a different, a different name, which is why I'm mentioning this, the way I'm mentioning it. This is an article from the Newburn journal on August 10th of 1922. And it's a short uh, blurb and it's not, it doesn't sound like it's about any of these guys, but it does mention this having happened. The Newburn Journal published a news story yesterday afternoon asserting the paper had confirmation of the report current there early this week that Boehner Blackwell was a supposed leader of a crowd of Negroes, N-E-G-R-O-E-S, which last week attacked Cyrus Long, a rural mail carrier, and that he was lynched near Swansboro, Onslow County, Sunday night. The newspaper did not give its authority. The Newburn Journal charges that Sheriff J. Gerganus of Onslow County, who has steadfastly denied knowledge of the reported lynching, is attempting to suppress the facts. It also is reported that the, quote, Negro was driven from the county and that the whereabouts of the Negro is unknown. Mr. Long died at Swansboro last night, according to a long-distance telephone message received here. He never regained consciousness sufficient to enable him to describe its attack. Mr. Long regained sufficient strength an hour after the attack to drive his automobile a few miles, where he secured assistance and immediately collapsed into unconsciousness. Occasionally, during the several days before his death, he attempted to whisper some words, but only a few were understandable. Okay. Very odd formatting and terrible spelling aside. Uh, what do you get from that to start Who's with? Who's Mr. Long? Exactly. So Cyrus Long is what they say in that article. Okay. Are we sure that this is the same case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Trust me, this wouldn't be here if it weren't for what's happening. Um, I, I, I'm with you. Like, so when I when I go and I read about it in court. I get Cyrus Jones. When I go and read about it at University of Michigan, I get Cyrus Jones. In order to find this instant in North Carolina, uh, I had to look up the murder of Cyrus Long. Okay. There's a second article. And this pops up in this, it, as a special to the free press in Newburn, August the 9th of 1922. So this is leading into the article I just read there, okay? Yep. Okay. It says, Negro driven out of Swansboro section, but no injury done him. Newburn hears alarming rumors frequently. 
Firm denials that any of the reports reaching Newburn yesterday relative to a lynching near Swansboro Sunday night were true. They were made by Deputy Sheriff Frank Jarman of Jacksonville and Clyde Pittman of Swansboro over long-distance telephone late last night that Boehner Blackwell, the lodge leader charged with conspiracy and the assault and shooting of Cyrus Jones, Swansboro mail carrier, was run away from the vicinity. This was reiterated by both those men. Reports from both Jacksonville and Swansboro late last night were to the effect that Mr. Long was still alive. Okay, so in this article, they call him Cyrus Jones, and then they quote Mr. Long as being still alive. Right. All right. So, so it, it, it does come together here. Now, what's important about this and, and what I'm pulling from here uh, is, is because some of this is going to pop back up in the court record here in just a minute. Although Mr. Long was still alive, he remained unconscious and was steadily growing weaker, it appeared. Dr. J.P. Henderson, who had been attending him, is of the opinion that there is no chance for his recovery. Black rumors, so that's like what two different words, but all kind of, it's, this is going to sound like weird grammar. Black rumors of threatened race trouble at Swansboro have been going the rounds in Newburn since Monday morning after a report had reached here that strange Negroes were seen at Swansboro. And it was said at one source yesterday that a member of the mob had given a story of the lynching. So that's the lynch mob has told a story about Boehner Blackwell being lynched. It is the opinion of the Onslow officers that the reports have been circulated in order to arose excitement throughout this section. So first of all, this is some of the strangest news reporting I was going to say, Banner Blackwell didn't come up either. I, that's, that's why I'm, I'm talking to you about this. So there's one more article that basically just repeats this. I'm bringing this up because Banner Blackwell is on the red record, which the red record is a history of lynching. They actually list sites and incidents throughout North Carolina. That comes up here, and we hear these names, But now I'm going to switch back over to the court document for a second. Here's what it says. Dr. J.P. Henderson, same name from these news articles, is a witness for the state and testifies. I am a practicing physician at Swansboro, practiced since June of 1915, and I knew Cyrus Jones. I called to see him the evening of August 5th this year, arrived about 8 o'clock. He was at the home of Mr. Midget, the next door neighbor, in bed. His condition was that I would, what I would term shock. His pulse was very rapid. His extremities were beginning to get cold. He showed evidence of a gunshot wound to the left temple, and his clothes were very bloody. There was penetration of the skull just in the front of the left ear at this point, and he indicates that it was about the size of a dime. The bone was detached but not broken away from the point of penetration. The gunshot had penetrated the left side of his head from the upper portion of the neck to the top of the head. The shots appeared at an angle of about 45 degrees, very little more than that. And he says that he can show you better than I can tell you about like this. And the court indicates that he indicated how it would have entered. So that the penetration was upward. Larger number of shots seemed to have entered this part than any other place. It was the left temple region. 
just about a quarter of an inch in front of upper insertion of left ear and above the zygmoid. That is the process of the temple bone, which meets the process of the maxillary bone outside of the skull. It's basically describing a spot on the left side of your face where your jaw, the top of your skull, and your ear all sort of meet. I found one bruise on the left coastal cartilage near the junction of the cartilage with the ninth rib. There was a small bruise about an inch and a half in length as best I can remember. Another bruise just below that was smaller, about half the size of the first. They were the only bruises unless they were masked by these gunshot wounds. The wounds were on the left side. I believe that he was conscious or partially conscious, I would say. I think he remained so for about 30 minutes. He did not regain consciousness afterwards that I know of. He died on the following Wednesday after the shooting. I saw him after he was dead. I think he died of meningitis as a result of a gunshot wound. So that's a that's a summary of the direct examination that they put here. What they've done is they've basically taken Dr. J.P. Anderson and every question that he's been asked, they have sort of paraphrased the answer and put it into one rolling paragraph. Have you ever seen this before? Yes. Okay. So it's considered to be his testimony, although we don't know exactly what he was being asked. We have to kind of infer it from the answers. Now, there's a cross-examination here, and that cross-examination gives us a little more insight into where the defense is headed. When I say cross-examination, typically I mean a defense attorney in this instance is going to be asking questions of the witness I just read testimony of, but we're not going to see those questions. I'm going to be giving you the summary from the court document that is summarizing Dr. Henderson's answers to the defense. From the character of the wound, the probable position of the person who fired the shot with reference to the body was at a point opposite the left side of the man's head. The shot seemed to have entered directly, going slightly up. I probed some of the shot wounds, but not the intercranial wound, which is the one inside of the skull. There was no powder stains on his person that I noticed. It was impossible to tell just how many shot had struck him. A great many, though not a few. At a place indicated the shot seemed to have gone in a wad. Others just single shot wounds. The outer table of his skull was broken. Mr. Jones made an incision in the scalp just at the base of the posterior extreme of left parietal bone, the bone that makes up the vault of the skull on the left side. I found outer table penetrated, but I did not ascertain whether or not shot entered the brain at that point. Probably they did. Large, one of wounds or bruises on the body, about an inch and a half long, nearly an inch wide, small one near an inch square, about two and a half inches apart. The skin was what we term grazed. It was bruised, but not broken enough to be freely bleeding, bruised in a scratchy way. He appeared to be the same clothes on him when he was shot. I noticed no break of garment where bruises were. I said yesterday he was partially conscious, best I remember. I don't remember using the term semi-conscious. Semi-conscious means partially conscious and may mean more or less conscious. There was some consciousness, enough to cause the man to speak when asked certain questions. I stated that in a half hour of consciousness, he had gone to stay, so far as I know. Shot had penetrated the brain and death resulted from that. 
The lower shot had penetrated the brain and had gone upward at some kind of angle through the skull cavity, very slightly upward. At two places, shot went in the bunches. I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming he means he has two places with multiple shots going in. There's a place in front of his ear with a larger bunch of shots and a hole cut about the size of a dime. All right. So this is a little garbled in terms of like court records, but I think he even, he says Dr. Jones in here and Mr. Jones. I don't know if he means that, um, but I still don't know, even after listening to, to what he's got to say here, I don't know where this mistake made that he becomes to call him Dr. Long. And this is taking place in October, whereas the news articles were August. So I think this is going to be the correct record on his name. So, so they haven't just switched from Cyrus Jones to Cyrus Long. They're now calling him Dr. Long. That does... It appears to be the case here, but I think that's just an error maybe in the the transcript of what they're doing here. Now, there's a couple more witnesses that pop up and have that same type of testimony. And, and the court, the appellate court here, they are taking it pretty seriously. So this is being heard in a way that like an appeal would be heard today. To give you like a, a specific example... This type of hearing, you would have multiple attorneys. So the first attorney you would have is for uh, Georgie Williams. And then the second set of attorneys you would have is for Frank and Fred Dove, although they have the same attorney. And then across from them in front of these judges, you have an assistant attorney general. So at the assistant attorney general's table, you have two attorneys. So it's two versus two at this point in time uh, when they're doing this testimony. So everybody gets a little crack at this. They have two more witnesses that they brought up that I feel like are important. The first one is the widow. So it's Cyrus Jones's widow. And what she has to say in her summary blurb is that they live in Swansboro and she had seen her husband after dark, after he was shot. So about an hour after he was shot, he was unconscious, and she was notified at her father's, which is about a mile from the village. When I got to him, she says, he was conscious, but I was overcome and unable to get to him for about 25 or 30 minutes. When I then saw him, he was unconscious. I couldn't say if he regained consciousness before he died. On Sunday afternoon, he appeared to be somewhat conscious. Witness details reason why she thinks consciousness may have returned to her, to him. He died Wednesday after dark, around 8 o'clock, after Saturday on which he was shot. So he had shot on Saturday. She gets there Saturday night, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. He dies on Wednesday. She says, right around 2 o'clock on his return from Maysville, he left about $85 with me on the day he was shot, and he kept $10. He was in the habit of bringing money from Maysville and leaving it with me when he got checks cashed for people, or he would give it to them at the post office when they lived in the village, or he would leave it with Mr. Davis. He was a, so somewhat Cyrus now, he was a mail carrier and ran an automobile for hire, which is like a taxi service or Uber, I guess, for some of our younger folks who listen. 
He frequently carried money for people to Maysville and back, and he would get checks cashed for people in the village right often. I suppose this was generally known in that section. So what she's laying out here are reasons that people might know about what he does and have a motive to rob him, which kind of contradicts where we started with this, uh, it being this issue over that he'd leave someone at the Marines, right? Right. Um, Yes, you're right. All right. So our last witness here in this section is John Midget. So John Midget is the neighbor that Cyrus went to, and this is his summary here. I live at Swansboro. I knew Cyrus Jones. I saw him the afternoon of August the 5th, somewhere around 7 o'clock. I was eating supper, and I heard a car pass going in, and I heard somebody hollering, and I jumped up and ran to the door. I looked down the road, jumped out, and ran down there, and then I saw it was Mr. Jones. I ran up to him, and I said, Cy, what's the matter? So at this point in the testimony, the defendants object, and and they ask – exception to the question and answer and part of the answer separately. Basically they're saying he can't give hearsay back after he asks Cy what's the matter, but we're going to get there. He says, I'm beat all to pieces. Take me in and carry me in the house. Get a doctor. Ain't no chance for me. So I took him out and carried him to my house and I asked him, Cy, who beat you? Each defendant Uh, objected and accepted to the question and answer here. They basically don't want this thought of as a dying declaration, which would allow it to be admitted under a hearsay exception. Yes. Cyrus said, Collins, Williams, and Dove. And I said, Cy, what did they beat you about? He said they were taking his car. I asked him where he wanted to go. And he said, to your house. I carried him and set him on the bed. He called for water and I gave it to him and he spit it back out. He told me to get a doctor for him, take him out of the car and to the house and get him a doctor and that there was no chance for him. I got Freeman to go for the doctor who was there for about 20 minutes after I took him out of the car. Before I asked him who beat him up, he stated there was no chance for him. I don't know who Freeman is, but I'm guessing he works here. Um, And from the tongue-in-cheek name and the timing of all this being the 1920s, um, I think there might be some things that could be inferred from the name Freeman, but I'm not sure. So now we run into this sort of middle section before we cross over uh, to the cross-examination. And basically, they repeat this objection and exception, and they pull it out, and and the judge is going to make a ruling on it. The question was, who did he say beat him up, if anybody? And then he's allowed to answer, and he says, the witness answered, Collins, William, and Dove. He remained in my house until he died, was conscious when the doctor got there, lived about 20 yards from me, died on Wednesday, seven minutes after 8 o'clock, following August the 5th, so the next Wednesday, basically. On cross-examination, the summary of his statement is, his statement to me about who shot him was made about 7 o'clock. I told it that night. I don't know exactly what time nor to whom. I don't remember whether I told it to the first people who came. When I first asked him, he said Collins. Don't know how many Collinses are in that neighborhood, nor how many Doves. Some people call him Willie Collins, and some call him Willie Hardison. 
I knew knew his name only as Collins up to the shooting. Told people that was what the sick man had said. I don't know what I told it as soon as I got there. When I went with the crowd that night to try to ferret out some things, I went to John Dove's twice. I went first and examined the guns, but I found nothing wrong. None of John Dove's guns had been shot. I went back the second time and I took Frank and Fred Dove before the mayor and guess the mayor examined them separately and examined whatever evidence they could get. The boys that went back home and were arrested later, I went with them to George Williams' house that night. They examined the guns and found no gun there had been shot, but they only found one gun. We examined Dove's, Williams, and Jimmy Harper's houses that night and found no freshly shot guns. We examined the guns. Harper and his son Henry came to the door at his house. I think they examined the other colored people's houses all around there that night after the wounded man had told me what he told me and after I had told it to others. There was in the neighborhood at that time John Dove and his brother and his son Jimmy and Frank and Fred Dove, all of them, and the old man was there. We went to John Dove's brother's house the night of the shooting. He lives about 350 yards from the place of the killing, I suppose. Suppose John lives something like half a mile, maybe nearer a mile. I guess Frank and Fred live with John, with, was only with the crowds that went to Doves and Williams. I declined to talk with counsel for the Doves about the matter after I had been subpoenaed by them. The reason was I didn't want to tell about it until I first got on the stand where they could all hear, was not under a subpoena by the state at that time, but was subpoenaed by the defendants. Time Jones made the statement that he was done for, was taken was before I took him out of the car. I told the solicitor what I knew about it before that time. All right. You follow everything I'm saying there, right? I followed what you said, yes. What's wild about this case is we're here for like potentially a false accusation. But the legal process back then, if you like read between the lines and listen to exactly what that guy's saying, there's no police involved here. You follow that part? Right. Yeah, no, I see it. The mayor is ta- is doing the, the, the questioning and the, the community has taken it upon themselves to sort of just wander in and out of everybody's home looking at everybody's guns. What do you think about all that? Well, it was definitely a different time. See, I just, I'm not really sure what to think of it, honestly. What do you think of it? Oh, I think it's fascinating to, like, so we have all these rules in place now. Like, the amendments were already set for most of this. The Bill of Rights is definitely in place in 1922. But now we have all these precedents that if you look back on them, you can see these cases are what sort of set up why we have to be like handheld. Now they go through and the attorneys talk to Willie Hardison. They talk to a guy named IE Rogers, who was one of the gentlemen who came over to Midget's house that night. And then we have RW Freeman. He was the gentleman that uh, John Midget sent to get the doctor. And all of that comes up. Have, have you read to the end of this case in terms of like, do you know what happened already? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to summarize that here, and then we'll talk about how that happens. So this is a few months later, and this judge's name is E.H. Cramner, by the way. So this is all happening after Judge E.H. Cramner has put this trial together. This is in the appellate section. Now, so to recap, Willie Hardison was tried and convicted of Jones's murder. He testifies here. 
Frank, Fred, Dove, and George Williams. So Frank, Dove, Fred, Dove, and George Williams, they're all tried together and convicted. Hardison appears as a witness. And one of the things that happened was we had a dying declaration of the victim let in under a hearsay exception. They're also convicted of murder in the first degree. All right. So the sentences for all four guys is to die by electrocution. Now at the time, there's no automatic appeals, but that is, it's kind of assumed they're going to get an appeal and they do. They appeal for a new trial on March 21st, 1923. We have the, like the biggest round of that happening in, and that's what I was just pulling from, by the way, that's with the, the North Carolina Supreme court. They end up ruling that there's no error. So dates are set for the Dove brothers, meaning Frank and Fred and for George Williams to be executed. Governor Cameron Morrison signs their death warrants on April 26th of 1923. The next day, April 27th, 1923, this all happens in August. This is April 27th. Willie Hardison is executed. Before his execution, he confesses that it was just him responsible for the death of Cyrus Jones and that he had implicated the others under threats of lynching and other physical force. A couple things come up here. First of all, where is Boehner Blackwell in this? Well, that's what I was wondering. Um, does that, that never comes up, right? It's not in here in a way that like I can make it make sense. Well, uh, it's in the news, which right, that, but it's not in the court at all. Right. There is a reference in the footnotes when the, Cross-examination occurs of Harrison, Hardison, excuse me. There's a, there, Willie, so Willie Hardison comes, he testifies for the state against the three. And he tells a really long story. He mentions that Boehner Blackwell ends up being put in front of the mayor is how he quotes it. The idea was that he was there being uh, interrogated by the mayor. And that's it. That's the only reference to him. Anymore. And so do we know if uh, Baynard Blackwell was actually lynched at that time? We, we, no don't, we don't. We um, don't. My, uh, my reports that I had dug up indicate that Baynard Blackwell was lynched. At but, that time? Yeah, that he was, he was lynched on August 6, 1922. What I can't connect is whether or not it's related to this situation. Hmm. That's interesting. And so he gets brought in, and the way that uh, the way that Hardison tells the story, a bunch of people get brought in and like sat, kind of like you have to imagine, like um, like back in time, if we were in school, you get called to the principal's office, and sometimes a couple people would be involved in an incident. You're all sitting outside the principal's office. Right. The, the way that Hardison tells the story is like they're basically sitting waiting to talk to the principal about what they've done. And that there's several boys sitting there and he doesn't get let go. The story is really long. I'm not going to get into the whole thing there because I've covered it with what other people are saying. But from what I can tell, Boehner Blackwell, by the time these guys are going on trial, he's just the one that's assumed to have been in charge of the gang that turns out not to be a gang. And he's pulled out of the jail and he's lynched, which is terrible. So I don't want to put like any kind of lightweight anything on that. But also, 
Can I just say that Willie Hardison is 16 years old? He is 16. Uh, he had his death date set first. Yes. And uh, the following day, after uh, the governor signed his death warrants, he, the 16-year-old Willie Hardison is, is executed, right? Yes. And see, the the records aren't real clear on exactly how the confession happened or whatever, right? Well, um, there's multiple confessions, so it depends on which one you're talking about. But that one is you talking about the 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 final confession before he died. It no. Well, what I what I mean is, I understand that he had his last confession, and that's and that was. Uh, taken into consideration but what I mean is um, I don't know like because Hardison initially testified against the other he absolutely did yes okay and so to me like I, I don't know why he implicated them just to turn around and confess before he died that it was him and him alone. If you go through and listen to or uh, read his testimony and you're imagining listening to his testimony, it's really confusing. Like he flat out says George Williams pulled the trigger. Well, right. And so, you know, well, what do we think happened? I tend to give credence to things that happen immediately before people die, but that may be the wrong approach. But I believe that with him being executed on April 27th and confessing that he alone was responsible for the death of Cyrus Jones and that he had implicated others under the threats of lynching and other physical force, hindsight being what it is, looking at this, I think Boehner Blackwell being pulled out and hung at this time by a lynch mob by a lynch mob is what allows the circumstances to occur where this guy ends up in a situation where he's telling a story implicating a bunch of other black kids for lack of a better word because he was afraid yeah because he was afraid huh there's a lot of fear in his story even when he's telling the story, including them. Right. You know, today, this would not have occurred. He he would, even though he could be sentenced to life in prison. No, actually, I don't, I don't know exactly what the rules are, but because he's 16, he would not be put to death. Yeah, I mean, we're barely putting people to death for things like this anyways. I, I don't think, I, I, I like to think that there would be a more definitive outcome in all of this. Well, because they all get, uh, so they're, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you want me to run down what happens with everybody really quick? Well, right, just because my my point was, like, this is a good example of, like, you know, why 16-year-olds aren't put to death now, right? I mean. Well, yeah, because you've definitely, you've got at least three stories here. You've got some kind of story he tells when he's first brought in. You know that's not necessarily going to be the truth if he's got these other two stories later. Because his second story, he brings in the, the other people, but he brings in specifically George Williams as the shooter. And then the doves get involved in that section of the story. So then you've got the story that he tells right before his execution on April 27th. So we've executed 16-year-old Willie Hardison, April 27th, 1923, right after he has 
basically recanted everything that he said, regardless of what was true before. I think his last statement is the truth. So what happens during the time after he's executed in 1923 is there are a lot of letters sent to the governor. And so it starts out, it's Governor Cameron Morrison. People are writing letters and petitions on behalf of these three men requesting executive clemency. And most of them are using the cornerstone that this dying 16-year-old said, they did not do this. It was on me and I was uh, under, I was being threatened to be lynched. And that's right before, you know, he has a switch flipped on him. So in addition to Judge Cramner, the prosecutors end up recommending a full pardon. And a petition requesting these pardons was signed by 400 of Onslow County's, quote, leading citizens, including four jurors, the clerk of the Superior Court, the Swansboro Postmaster, a, a former sheriff, and the current sheriff. So on June 28, 1923, Governor Morrison commutes those three sentences to life in prison. Because Will, Willie Hardison's gone. But the other three get commuted to life in prison. Right. So they're not let out. This is no. important, right? It, right? They're just not going to be put to death and they're going to spend the rest of their life in prison at this point. That's, that is what it looks like on June 28th, 1923, when he commutes their sentences. It's sort of a, it's, it's almost a pardon nullification. So to get a commutation like this, it basically means the public has raised enough of an outcry and there is some piece of questionable like circumstances, but not enough that the governor wants to be on the wrong side of law and order. So the governor commutes the sentence so they can't be executed. And the idea is he's passing the buck to someone else to deal with it, whether it's back to the prosecutors or back to the courts or whatever. He's made sure they're not getting a death warrant signed. So they're not going to be executed because we've already executed this one guy. And he said he did it. Nobody else had anything to do with it. Uh, plus, we already have heat on this situation because we haven't even come up on a year yet by the time the uh, commutations where allegedly there was also a lynching in the mix that has been tracked. And I ha like my source on that lynching for Maynard Blackwell is good. Uh, it's out of, you know, the, the UNC files on unreported lynchings. So you don't have any of the mob names here from the lynch mob or the, uh, the, the, the particulars on it, but you have it on pretty good authority that it potentially happened. So then August, 1925, the Dub brothers and George Williams, they petitioned for an absolute pardon. That petition stated that Willie Hardison implicated them because he was threatened. So once Hardison was in Raleigh and out of harm's way, meaning once he had gone to death, death row, he was out of the Onslow County threat problem. So he's being threatened by locals. Once he's in, I don't know how long you want to say that, but once he's in the last part of his life, because he knows he's going he's to be executed, which is happening pretty quickly, he feels safe enough that he can make a full confession. He confessed several times. The last confession is on the day of his execution. So that's what they put in the August 1925 uh, petition for the Dove brothers and for George Williams. That petition gets denied. A second petition is presented to Governor Angus McLean in February of 1928. So this is kind of happening in three-year increments. The event occurs uh, with the crime in 1922. The first execution is in 1923. And then in 1925, we have a, a petition for a pardon. 
they don't get it, but they had already been commuted for life sentence, their life sentence, two life sentences from the death penalty. Well, finally, at this point, you've got Williams and Frank and Fred Dove. They have been absolute model prisoners. And Governor McLean on March 1st of 1928, he pardons them and he frees Frank, Fred, and George. That's all I got on these guys. What about you? Yeah, I don't have anything else. I'm I'm still quite confused by it. But, you know, we got to the point where they had been exonerated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this is a very difficult case to follow. I think partly because of the place and time and partly because of things like expectations that we have of normal court cases. They just didn't happen to apply here. Well, in a, in a lot of things that we would expect now, they actually didn't exist then. Yeah, you're you're 100 percent correct. We would like this behavior in a modern trial would like it would be automatic misconduct, don't you think? Oh, no question. Yep. Well, that's that's all I've got on these guys. I wanted to bring this story today um, and a missing person because we're we're going through our different um, holiday shows here. But I thought this was a, a good one to sort of highlight. And uh, it's, it's all I got for now, but we'll be back tomorrow with another one. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the Crime XS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day 
when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? 
Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. 
if you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.